Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We try and get used to the idea of Nico Rosberg, world champion, and dig into the Snapchat controversy. So, it's in Nico Rosberg's hands now. Four second places, hitting par, if you're prone to a golfing analogy, behind Lewis Hamilton in the remaining race of 2016, will mean he is world champion. You certainly wouldn't bet against him the way things are going. My name is Ed Straw, and joining me to discuss all things Japanese Grand Prix is F1 Racing Deputy Editor Stuart Codling, star of the famous YouTube How to Pack to Travel to a Grand Prix video, Destination Singapore. So, Codders... What's your advice to Nico Rosberg if he needs to find space in his luggage for a World Championship trophy? Well, the seasoned traveller uh, is often thrown out by unexpected requirements, as you will well know as, as, as a viewer of that, of that video. So um, my advice to Nico is, um, by all means, leave a little bit of free space, but also one should not count one's chickens before they're hatched, as it were. So if I were in his shoes, I would not be jettisoning the spare pants and socks to make way for a championship trophy I haven't won just yet. That's very sound advice for Nico. I'm sure he'll be taking that uh, very much on board. Also joining me is Glenn Freeman, editor of autosport.com. Now, you're not going to disrespect the listeners of the Autosport podcast by fiddling with Snapchat for the next 40 minutes, are you? 
Uh, just give me a sec. I'm putting some bunny ears on your face as we're talking. No, you're not uh, first. Do you want me to? Do you want me to put the phone down? Should yes. We, should we crack on? Put the phone down. Stop disrespecting the audience. Sorry, audience. Get on. You should apologise sincerely. Say it like you mean it. I can't. No, you can't, you, you I'm going to block it. you on Twitter now. Well, with the audience suitably disrespected, on to the Japanese Grand Prix. Nico Rosberg is going to be world champion, isn't he, at this rate? Uh, you know, stranger things have happened, and I, 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 I always fight a little bit shy of drawing a pattern towards the end of the season because it's a bit tricky. I've, I just remember a very painful situation on F1 racing about 10 years ago, nine years ago now, the run into the 07 championship when we had to have what with deadlines, about three different covers to suit the event, that the, the, the likelihood of um, either Lewis or uh, Felipe Massa or Fernando Alonso winning the world championship. We had a different cover for each one, and we really didn't think that Kimi Raikkonen would win the world championship, and then look what happened. So that was a nice little midnight trip for the printers to sort that one out. So you're saying Kimi Raikkonen's going to win the world championship? It could have well. heard. <laughs> That's doubled our listenership. They thought Kimmy's going to win. <laughs> uh, he's not this year, although he is, he is driving well. But, but it's interesting, isn't it? The thing that's changed for me at Suzuka is that now Rosberg, he just needs to drive around behind Hamilton. Four second places sounds quite easy. Obviously, there's things that can go wrong, engine failures. Lewis didn't exactly have an easy run to second in Suzuka and ended up, ended up finishing third. So that's not necessarily a guarantee, but it is in his hands, isn't it? If, Ham- if Hamilton wins all four races, he's still not necessarily champion. What's really interesting, though, is how few times this season Mercedes have actually had one-twos. I think across the three years of dominance that they've had, this is probably the least successful year um, for actually getting both cars ahead ahead of the competition. So while it seems simple, you almost think that the worst thing Rosberg could do is switch into that mindset of, right, I just need to start finishing second to Lewis now. In terms of, is he going to win the world championship? I actually think this weekend was when I changed my mind. After Malaysia, I was still convinced Lewis would pull it back. But Rosberg bounced back from a bit of a trouncing on track at Sepang. And he just delivered at Suzuka. We know he's quick there, but he strung the whole weekend together. It was Hamilton having the problems. Hamilton maybe making a couple of little mistakes. I was not sure that Rosberg would do it at all before Suzuka, but I think he's convinced me. I'm sure he won't want to be remembered as someone who only won the World Championship because he maximised his opportunities when his teammate had a bad day. Well, obviously at Suzuka, he didn't capitalise on his teammate so much. Yes, he gained more points because Hamilton only finished third, but Rosberg was on pole, albeit by the tiniest of margins, and he won the race. So even if Hamilton had got off the line as he should have done, you could argue he'd have just been second. So at least there are some signs from Rosberg now that he's, he's kind of taking it the way he should do. Yeah, Singapore uh, was a command performance as well, wasn't it? Brilliant pole position, fantastic lap, parlayed it into a very successful race and and he just went as fast as he had to or could to, bearing in mind the limitations and and didn't put a wheel wrong. It actually feels a little bit like that spell in 2014 before the Spa collision, only obviously this is right near the end of the season and a much more critical juncture, so even if there is a collision uh, that, that wipes them both out or that it's his fault. It's not necessarily going to going to undermine his championship bit. Well, it'd almost be good for him if he can wipe them both out of the race because it's another race where Lewis can't make back any points. I hope for Rosberg's sake that he wins the championship with at least, in a couple of these races, a couple of straight fights against Hamilton and he actually defeats him because Hamilton's had so many problems this year that no matter how well Rosberg has driven, how many weight races he has won, 
there's always going to be <clears throat> people who suggest that he won this championship because Hamilton hit trouble. So he's got a chance now, I feel, with it being in his, ha- in his hands, hopefully he can relax a little bit and he can continue to put in Singapore and Suzuka-like performances. And he can just prove to people that I do deserve this world championship. I am worthy of being of joining the list. You know, Let's have another first-time world champion. Do you think that it's actually made for a better and certainly a different world championship storyline this year, having these two guys not necessarily fighting for the same bit of tarmac at any one time. You know, there have been races where either one of them has had a bit of trouble and has then had to fight back. And so it's made it a little bit more delicately poised towards the end, which makes it more of a 1988 than a 1992, for instance. I, I feel like it's it's given us a quite interesting championship dynamic because... We've had the big swings in points between the two and it has stayed close. But I feel like we haven't had enough of them going wheel to wheel. I would have liked to have seen whichever way around it was, whoever won the races and whoever came out on top at the end of the season. I'd have just liked to have seen the championship be decided by more actual straightforward battles between the two of them. I feel like we haven't, we haven't maybe seen enough of that this year. And again, that maybe that's one of the things that might count against Rosberg in some people's eyes if he wins the championship. It's fair to say that Hamilton has had more than his fair share of misfortune this year. He has lost points. Obviously, a few bad starts have held him back. He had a part to play in those, so he has to take some responsibility. And in fact, he did do that as Azuka for his, his terrible start that dropped him down to eighth. As a driver, you've got to be in charge of the very few control surfaces you've actually got, which are the pedals, the steering wheel... Uh, the clutch and the gear change mechanism. So it's not actually that many things you've got to be able to touch and and feel and make work for you. So a triple world champion really ought to be able to pull a lever and uh, engage a clutch. And it's interesting as well because starts can be a problem for some drivers, especially in certain pressure situations. I remember some of those in Red Bull talking about some of Mark Webber's starts that used to get quite kind of grabby, should we say, when you really need to kind of caress the clutch paddles. Well, it becomes an what issue, was, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, exactly. And then it, and then it becomes that thing of, oh, don't make a bad start, don't make a bad start, don't make a bad start. And that's also part of the same psychological factor set that Rosberg needs to be aware of in terms of this idea of him wanting to go out and win it in style. That could actually help him because if he just thinks, right, I want to go and win the next four races, not really worry about the championship, not second-guess himself, not play a conservative, just aim to dominate, do his job step-by-step, step, as drivers like to say, throughout the weekend, that might actually make it a bit easier than if you overthink it. You mentioned the 2007 title running, obviously 2008, McLaren played it quite conservative in the Brazilian Grand Prix, and Interlagos almost paid the price. And I think that kind of conservatism that sometimes comes from strength can be a, a real risk. Well, that happened uh, in 2003 as well, didn't it? Michael Schumacher needed, what, a 7th or an 8th to get the championship? And he drove like a man trying to finish 7th or 8th, and he made a right mess of it and only just brought it home. You don't really associate that with Schumacher. You expect him to go out and dominate the weekend. So, as I said at the start, I think the worst thing Rosberg can do now is assume that all he needs to do is keep finishing second to Hamilton. Mercedes have proven that they have enough weaknesses this year that if Ferrari and Red Bull are up for the fight on any given weekend, there's a fair chance that the second Mercedes isn't going to come home, PT. Well, the bottom line is, I don't think anyone would stake money on Mercedes getting 4 one twos. So as soon as you factor that in, then it tells you it's not over. Rosberg could have a DNF, Hamilton wins, and then suddenly all bets are off again. It's a straight fight. It's very easy to sit round a table and say, you know, you just need to do this. 
and I'm sure they very often have done, but it's a completely other thing to sit on the grid and make a getaway because that, that's the one point where the, the human factor and human frailty come into it. Well, this is what people forget. Elite sport is incredibly high pressure. It's not just a little bit of pressure, it's incredibly high pressure, and that pressure doesn't necessarily manifest itself as drivers being stressed and thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. It just manifests itself in terms of little errors, tiny mistakes that can define your whole race. You know, Hamilton's bad start Suzuka. If you actually look at the parameters, which of course Mercedes will have done in depth, it will be something infinitesimally small that will have made the difference between leading on the first lap and running eighth. And those are the margins that can decide the title. What I think will be really interesting is the next race is Austin, where we know Hamilton goes well there. He must be looking forward to striking back there. That will be a huge test for Rosberg as well, because if Hamilton hits the ground running on Friday, Rosberg's got to be able to almost compartmentalise that in his brain and say, OK, this is a place where Lewis is mega. I've got to do the best job I can. And almost not focus on the other side of the garage, not focus on trying to finish second, but just keep his head down and do the thing that he says he always does, which I find quite frustrating and boring to listen to, which is not think about the points race, not think about the races that are coming, and just take it one weekend at a time. He says it all the time. I can't believe that it's true. You know, he, can't, he can't go into these final four races thinking and not thinking about a 33-point margin with four races to go, surely. That's the thing, isn't it? You hear sports people always saying that, just concentrating on taking each game as it comes, etc. And that is them consciously trying not to look at that wider picture. It comes down to that old thing of, of being process-focused versus objective-focused. If you focus on, must win the World Championship, must finish second, must do this, rather than just must take steps one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, up to however many steps it takes to put together a Grand Prix weekend. As soon as you're looking at that end target, then you, know, you are opening yourself up to things going wrong because if you're a little bit behind the curve at a given point then you start thinking oh I'm a little bit behind in Friday practice something's not quite right with the setup and then you start talking yourself out of it what you need to do is just focus on each thing as it comes and that's what drivers are always trying to convince themselves of when they say these very very boring statements and I suspect that that's the usual thing they're trying to tell themselves to do that they're trying to do that they're probably sitting there in quiet moments thinking, championship, championship, championship. Nico's probably there in quiet moments thinking, oh, I'm going to win the world championship. I'm only going to win it. And they say, oh, no, we might go wrong. You know, all these things will come into people's minds because this is such a big deal. If Nico Rosberg wins the world championship, it's the pinnacle of his career. You can't, no matter, some will argue differently, but you can't do anything better than winning the world championship in your career. That's what most drivers set out to achieve. Only 32 drivers have done it so far. So this is huge for Rosberg and this is, this could be his last chance to do it, so he absolutely has to has to play it right, but the stakes are so high that that could make it harder for him to do that. There was that classic moment, I think it was in Italy on the Sunday night, where he, he did his usual thing of saying, yeah, one race at a time, one race at a time, and someone challenged him on it, and they said, how can you say that? He was honest, and I think he was quite lucky that it didn't get picked up on more, really, because he said, if I thought about it all the time, I'd still be thinking about Lewis's point swing in the summer where he turned a 40-something gap uh, into zero and then turned it into a championship lead. He said, if I was thinking about that, I wouldn't get any sleep at night. And that, that was a little sort of insight into probably what you're saying there, that he is just trying to convince himself not to think about it. Well, it's interesting you say it wasn't really picked up on at the time because that, that's, that's something that's quite germane to item two on the agenda, uh, which I feel has got to do with people not really paying attention in press conferences. <laughs> 
whichever side of the table they're at. The Snapchat controversy. Obviously, uh, Autosport, we didn't really cover the first part of this, which was the, uh, the moment when Lewis wasn't paying attention in the, in the press conference. Um, but it did get lots of coverage, certainly British newspapers, various outlets around the world saying, look, here's a guy on his, on his phone throughout much of a press conference. Disrespectful. Some called it a storm in a teacup. What, what do we think about that? Do you think that was the, the great crime of our times? Do we think it was just a bit of fun? Or is there a middle ground? Is there a nuanced position? No, no fence sitting. No fence no sitting. It'd be bad okay. news for the fence in my way. I've, I've got kind of two parallel streams of thought on this because I, th- I think there are kind of two issues at play here. That sounds like a fantastic way to sit on the fence. Some, <laughs> both that, but also that two parallel streams of thought sounds fantastic for a podcast platform. Excellent. Okay, well, here are the two parallel streams of thought. Do we need to, do we need to mix thought. it? Left channel and right channel? Maybe so. Does, it, does this thing record in stereo? Actually, the, the two do interact, so you might actually need some sort of audio Venn diagram. Don't cross the streams, Codders. No. <laughs> Anyway, carry on. I think you had a point in here. Okay, yeah, my point somewhere. Stream one, um, in essence, the Thursday story and also the Saturday story is media writing about media. And so axiomatically, it's not really very interesting to people outside the media. And and I'm with um, sort of a majority of fans who sort of go, well, meh, so what? It's just someone misbehaving in a press conference. Why why get so hoity-toity about it? The second stream, I think, is that I kind of worry about Lewis's mentality in some ways because this this, this sort of strange act of... It was really just... He was not engaged... He didn't want to engage with what he knew he was going to get, which was people asking him about his suggestion that there was some sort of conspiracy against him. So is it a diversion tactic? It's a bit of a diversion tactic, but at the same time, it just bespeaks someone who is willingly separating themselves from their actual reality and just popping off into this little sort of parallel reality where they surround themselves with people who agree with their every word. They actively disengage with people who disagree with them. And before you know it, you're Michael Jackson or Henry VIII or whatever. <laughs> so it's, like Ma- it's Michael Jackson and Henry VIII. That's the centre point of the Venn diagram of these two streams of exactly. thought. Exactly. So I didn't y- see that coming. Yeah. So to, to take Henry VIII as the example... Cardinal well, it's appropriate. Yeah. Hampton Court's only just down the road. Down exactly. The road. Cardinal Wolsey fails to get him a divorce. Right, bump, I will fire you and get someone who can. And, and that way lies madness and six wives. That's a historical reference for the Snapchat generation, if there ever was one. I think the other key point about that is that all the conspiracy theories and that were partly of his own making. He was the one who got out of the car and understandably upset. You don't mind somebody expressing that they feel something's against them, but he was the, the kind of root cause of that. And I think... In his response to the controversy, so-called, it's probably quite a grandiose term for it, for that Thursday press conference to then on Saturday say, well, I'm not going to speak to the media. He said, I'm not here to answer your questions, I've decided. Um, saying people take advantage of it. He said he was being super light-hearted, but it feels like he's just trying to disconnect himself from his own actions. I, I don't think that the whole thing was a, was a massive controversy. I think his conduct in the press conference was, yeah, a bit unprofessional. There is no time when you're going to be more on duty in front of the press than in a press conference. So it's pretty unreasonable to take offence at people picking up on your behaviour in that. That said, it wasn't the most disrespectful thing you've ever seen. It's not going to cause the walls of civilization to fall down. So I think it was maybe we on, a slight... We're on the horn of Jericho now. <laughs> exactly, rich yeah. in historical illusion exactly, today. Exactly. So I, I think some of the reaction to it was a little bit over the top. 
but what do you expect when there's there's tabloid outlets that's their job but I also think that sitting down saying I don't want to talk to you because of it and then walking out of your media session walking not storming he was, he was calm and quiet and expressed himself okay, very clearly very well. I think that's that was the moment when for us and that's why Autosport covered the walkout on Saturday but not the original thing that's the moment when it moves from purely media writing about itself to the driver doing something and that's kind of what made it newsworthy for us that was what made it a story yeah and we talk about I had the same thought as Codders I thought is this really just a paddock story and no one's going to care but the numbers for that story on autosport.com were crazy everybody was eating that story up so there clearly was an interest in Lewis's relationship with the media and what's going on there at the moment I don't agree with what he did but I have a couple of elements of sympathy with him for what happened on Thursday the first one is he made the point well he claimed that his defense for his behavior was based in the fact that he's just bored of the weekend format it's the same every time and he made these points at Silverstone as well I I was there when he was talking about it and I actually agreed with him the Grand Prix weekend format has been the same for over a decade now they do everything at the same time. The sessions play out in exactly the same way, you know, even the practice sessions. So in terms of talking about the weekend format, Lewis has a point. He obviously made it very badly um, through playing around on his phone when everyone else is trying to get on with their jobs. Um, as for falling out with the media over the course of the weekend, that's up to him, really. You'd like to think that quite a lot of his superstardom has come as a result of some media coverage. Uh, I'm not sure if he'd be the mega A-lister that he is without a lot of the media coverage that's come around his exploits. Well, if people aren't talking about you, then you're not going to be worth the money you're worth. That's, no. that's a simple fact, and that's part of the price you pay yeah. for, for being in that position. Uh, yeah, the media it, are there to report on him fairly rather than to love him, and I think he's sort of lost sight of that, and he's choosing, you know, to, to come back to our historical analogy, he's, he's choosing to selectively engage with people who, who love him. Like, I'm going to go and talk to my fans now, you disagree with me you're blocked and to a to a smaller extent you see that in a microcosm in in the delightful scene that is the green room uh, before the podium where you see a 31 year old man standing in a corner with his back to people that he doesn't want to speak to instead of showing dare one say a little bit of class and putting on the smile you know I have to look at you two when I walk into the office and be nice to you why can't he well, you don't do a very good job of it but <laughs> well, I, I, would think, say I think the key thing is so I just want to make one point going back to that part of the exchange you make for being a megastar paid a lot is that you you get the coverage etc that's not this is very different to people with a telephoto lens taking pics of him on holiday and putting them in a, uh, in a tabloid magazine or something what was commented on was behavior in a press conference which is literally yeah, as in the media as you can get so people will say oh well, that means that doesn't mean your public property no it doesn't mean your public property but if any of us and the off chance any of us were in press conferences, we've, we've sat in plenty uh, on the other end of it. But if we're up in front of people in a press conference and you do something, then it's pretty unreasonable to get too annoyed about it, even if you feel the interpretation and the way what you did was presented wasn't entirely reasonable. People are going to report on it as well because it's in a press conference. Just to pick up on Glenn's point, though, do you think that I, I view the FIA press conferences uh, as a bit of a waste of time? Um, they, al- they always were a little bit. And I remember at my first professional Grand Prix that I attended as a, as a journalist, 2002, Austria, sitting there thinking, who are these idiots and why are they asking these stupid questions? And it's actually got worse in recent years because since it's been televised, um, the only questions come from people who've generally either scraped accreditation hither or thither and really want to 
be on TV and see their names on the transcript, or they're people who uh, want to serve their own ego by being seen to ask questions on TV. Or th th there's a smaller subset where sometimes you might ask a question just to put something out there. But generally speaking, it's become a little bit of an ego thing. So to my mind, a lot, a lot of this scenario is sort of the, the irresistible force of uh, spoiled, overindulged man-child meeting the immovable object of uh, serried ranks of bloated egos in a press conference. They, they certainly have become stale, and I think that gets back to Lewis's point about the Grand Prix weekend. Probably the, the live TV aspect, I think, made this a bigger story this time than if he'd done it 10 years ago before we had dedicated F1 channels, before we had this stuff turning up on YouTube and wherever else. It was the fact that a load of people could watch it live on TV as it happened and see it play out in full. It's one thing to see pictures afterwards of Lewis on his phone or Lewis holding his phone up to Carlos Sainz who sat behind him. But for people to have witnessed the whole surreal scenario playing out live as it did, I think that, that made it more dramatic. It made it more of a talking point. And that's probably why certain elements of the media jumped on it as much as they did. They'd seen the reaction to it immediately and felt that it was something they could get their teeth into. Lu Lewis gave them the platform. Well, that's very true. The initial reaction is, is rarely the media now. It's the, uh, it's the Twitterati and other social media users. But one thing we have to remember about Lewis Hamilton is he is a racing driver. He did do some driving of a racing car uh, for Suzuka weekend. And there was also a little bit of a, a little bit more social media related uh, arguing going on. Obviously, we had the battle with Max Verstappen late on. Lewis Hamilton was attacking, trying to get second place, which was pretty important championship-wise, you know, three-point difference compared to Rosberg. Verstappen made his late move into the chicane. What, what do we think of, A, the move? Was he, was he right to be annoyed? And then what was all this after the race with protests being lodged, Lewis saying protests hadn't been lodged, Lewis then obviously being told a protest had been lodged and saying, actually, I don't want it to be lodged. That so, all happened in about 90 seconds. Oh, it was brilliant. The time frame for that is incredibly short. It was absolutely short. stunning. So I guess, well, let, let's start with the actual racing. Does, that, does anybody think that, that Mercedes had a case? No. My gut reaction watching it live was that Verstappen had moved too late and I thought, oh, he's done it again. But watching the replays, not even in the slow motion, you know, watching them in real time and particularly... Hamilton's onboard made me realise the sort of dynamics of where the two cars were in relation to each other. Actually, I thought Hamilton was far enough back. You could really, you could see that Verstappen was going to close the gap. He just about closed it early enough that it gave Lewis time to go to the left. So I'm sort of with Hamilton in that they didn't have a case. It wasn't worth protesting. But I do, I do just wish Verstappen would commit to his defensive moves a little bit earlier. Well, eventually he's going to get someone up the back of him and he'll learn to stop doing it, won't he? And it'll because be his own fault. He can have exactly. he can, you can have no sympathy for him if in one of these incidents, like we've seen this year, eventually somebody clatters into him. And I think you're right, that's the only way he's going to learn. It's only because he's on track with a bunch of fellow high-level professionals that it hasn't happened already, is, is, is my reading of it. Yeah, that's fair. You know, people know what to expect and they're very, very good at reacting. You know, a, a Formula One driver is going to be best equipped to avoid those, those sorts of incidents. They're very good at not hitting each other generally. Which exactly. is Especially at the front. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to regulate precisely with carefully worded regulations what you can and cannot do defensively. There's so, there's so many factors involved in it. And I think, firstly, had they protested that, it wouldn't have got anywhere. They, they'd have said, yeah, well, you moved a bit late, not ideal, but it would, it would not have led to a penalty. 
I think the second thing is is Verstappen being over the line, probably in terms of, of racing ethics and what's sensible for him and the drivers around him. He goes a little bit too far, but he's kind of within his rights to go that far. You could probably say, but it will end up. It's going to end up with him missing out on a on a race win or a good result because he's done that and somebody's not done such an adept job at avoiding him. And that, and that's when he'll learn and think, oh, actually, maybe I shouldn't be doing that. And I seem to remember a certain Lewis Hamilton being criticised yeah, uh, back in the eight day. years ago, particularly in 2008, for moving around in, in braking zones. So this is sometimes a thing we see from what might be call, called uh, precocious youngsters in Formula 1. And they, they all learn. All of them do. Or get taught. Well, exactly. exactly, exactly but that, that, that corner is, is quite a tricky one because basically you, you come through... 130R and pretty much as soon as the track opens out in front of you you're at the 150 meter board so there's not really very much time to think or plan or have something in mind so if you're going to launch an attack there it either happens or it doesn't. That's very true and I think people have talked about well Verstappen should have moved you know a fraction earlier should we say but you know these are very fine margins he's in the car ahead so it's, it's difficult to uh, to pick out exactly what exactly what point it moves from acceptable through the spectrum into into hard but fair into unfair but I think in this case certainly a protest would have got nowhere I don't really understand why Mercedes did protest it my only hypothesis well I've got two actually so I've got two parallel hypotheses great let's see them either either somebody in the team i.e. a Nicky Lauda who was quite unimpressed decided to push something through or alternatively the team is quite sensitive about not being seen to support Hamilton Lewis was annoyed over the radio and, you know, drivers do get annoyed over the radio. They need to vent. Oh, I can understand why he was irritated about that. So maybe they thought, well, actually, he's not happy with that. He wants us to have a look at it. So let's let's go for it and see what happens. And then obviously Lewis thinks, oh, no, that that's not really... It, Lewis knows it wouldn't have worked, probably. And also, he's right, it, it looks a little bit churlish to, to then launch a protest that wouldn't be heard for two weeks, that wouldn't actually reverse the result and we just might have everyone looking a bit silly on the Thursday of the US Grand Prix. But the thing I find really strange is the fact that Mercedes had launched that protest and we we were talking sort of, what, 15, 20, 30 minutes later, Hamilton still didn't know about it. I appreciate he'd left the track, but surely at some point someone drops him a message saying... Perhaps he'd blocked them accidentally. (laughs) Maybe they Snapchatted him and he'd run out of battery. But I I just, I was amazed to see the initial tweet he put out that got deleted, saying, we haven't protested. I think he said, some idiot said we did, but we haven't, or we're not going to. Uh, And it was only up for about 60 seconds, because obviously at that point, someone in the team decided it was time to tell him that there there actually was a protest. I find it... I'm baffled as to what the lines of communication were there, especially because I think he was travelling with people like Toto Wolff. So I guess he was with them, because he was about to fly with them. It does seem very strange. I think we can safely say it wasn't Hamilton's fault this he, he didn't, no, not at all. He didn't no. launch a protest There's the, he's absolutely blameless in this regard and I can't blame him for being a little bit irritated with, with Verstappen in the, in the heat of the moment but I guess the other question about this whole thing is what was Verstappen doing that high up in the first place because we've seen this battle for second throughout the season between Red Bull and Ferrari Red Bull's been coming on stronger Ferrari were quicker at Suzuka even though Verstappen was ahead of them and obviously because of Hamilton's problems Ferrari is concerning, talking of teams that aren't getting the best out of what they've got. We had, obviously, Vettel had a grid penalty from Malaysia. That's not the team's fault. That's his fault. punishment for Vettel. They did have a gearbox problem for Raikkonen, led to a change. So he got a five-place grid drop after a, a very strong qualifying performance as well. So what, uh, what actually is going on here? 
with, with Ferrari because right now they look like a team that even if they could produce say a Mercedes challenging car I don't think they could operate it at the level needed to, to beat them on a regular basis it's, it's quite alarming the thing I find strange is that they did have good pace this weekend particularly at what has traditionally been considered a Red Bull track Red Bull normally go very well at Suzuka particularly in the first sector but we're sat here after the race and we've had Ferrari patting themselves on the back for having the second fastest car and finishing fourth and fifth. That seems to be the story of Ferrari's season to me. We've seen, we saw this right at the start of the year. talking up underachievement. Exactly. They, they had five, six races in of not delivering what they should have done. And they were still saying, oh, we're doing really well. We're really quick. You just think, okay, be positive. But blimey, don't go mad. They are a team that, you know, if I can say this while sitting opposite Ed Straw, they're clutching at straws. Are you being clutched at, Ed? (laughs) You're far enough away for that to be a safe statement. (laughs) But yeah, they they just seem to be um, so desperate to win or get a better placing that they they have this sort of tactical throw throw something against the wall to see if it sticks routine. So what what they did with Raikkonen kind of worked in that they ended up uh, ahead of Ricardo when they might otherwise not have done. But then there's this business of sticking Vettel on um, soft tyres in the hope that, you know, he might just all of a sudden find five seconds a lap or something like that. It's as if the people making the strategic calls don't actually understand the dynamics of racing. Well, to be able to take a, a risk or a gamble, there has to be a realistic possibility it'll pay off. Admittedly, I'm not sure that that gamble costs them massively, but it's part as part of the bigger picture. It's like we used to sort of see a few a few years ago from from Williams, just weird tyre calls, just like, well, we need to try something, so let's just try something that that won't work but if something ridiculous happens maybe it will and you think well that, that's not that's not a gamble that's that's just a crapshoot isn't it yeah bmw were like that in 2007 um doing random uh, alternative strategies just for no other reason that they could was it just that i mean they effectively gave up track position to hamilton in this sort of absurd hope that they'd be able to chase him and pass him later in a race but was it just that once mercedes pitted did they just spook themselves into assuming they were going to get undercut anyway? So then they did this weird thing where they kept Vettel out. And if you look at the race history chart that plots the pace of all the cars, you could see everybody else pitted. Vettel stays out, but his pace isn't good. So they knew they were giving up time. And Suzuka's quite a hard track to overtake on, particularly if you're trying to overtake a car as quick as a Mercedes or a Red Bull. Um, so they just I think they boxed themselves into a bit of a corner. You could argue that perhaps where they really lost out strategically was getting jumped by Lewis in the first place in terms of Mercedes pitting first. They they could have seen that coming, perhaps, and tried to cover it off by getting in before him. But maybe once they'd become the second car to pit, they were doomed which, whatever they did. Yeah, they're just too reactive, really. Yeah, and, they and, need the to be rea- and the reactions are knee-jerk. Yeah, which, which says to me that they're not really on top of things strategically. The decision-making process isn't correct, and it just makes you wonder about the whole way that team works you know there are plenty of good people there they're not you know they're not stupid people they're very very skilled people but the way that with teams of this size the way everything integrates is so important and you just wonder whether not unraveling is perhaps not the phrase but obviously all the steps we saw last year the big big progress into 2015 was staggering i thought they'd do I, i didn't think they'd be able to win races in 2015 i certainly thought the objective of winning a couple of races was was a stupid thing to say as it happened they they more than hit that in fact but a lot of the decisions that helped them for 15 were made by the old regime the old Domenicali prior regime they've been very very late on the new engines etc decisions were made early in 2014 
that then helped into 2015. And of course, it, you look at it and you think, well, correlation, causation, new management, new people, aren't they doing brilliantly? And then you just wonder whether the way the decision-making process right at the top of that team is operating, in spite of the fact they've had someone as good as James Allison's technical director, who's obviously now no longer there, you just wonder whether that, that whether those decisions are actually correct. And if these, if you consider these strategy decisions to be kind of a microcosm of the wider decision-making process of the whole organisation, then you start to get a little bit worried. Do you think that by overachieving in 2015, if you want to call it that, did they maybe poke the beast in terms of waking Mercedes up a little bit and making Mercedes raise their game? It's almost like Mercedes had to find another level for this year, probably assuming that Ferrari were going to come with them. It's possible. And in many ways, they haven't. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of have to look at some of the races last year and e even the year before in, in some races where Mercedes were kind of at the limit of their performance, you know, struggling with brake temperatures and that sort of thing. And um, was it last year or the year before they brought an uh, engine step to Monza when kind of you thought they didn't really have to, but they thought they had to simply because th th they expected to be caught up? Yeah, and there's just no signs of <laughs> Ferrari really being a threat. I think if you were to put money on who's going to be challenging Mercedes next year, you certainly wouldn't put it on Ferrari. You'd, you'd put it on Red Bull with, with the Renault engines, wouldn't you? Yeah, and is the, is the Suzuka circuit layout thing it, it being considered a, a cornering, an aero circuit, is that a bit of a myth? Because there's actually a lot of full throttle on that layout, isn't there? So I just wonder if, while it looks good for Ferrari in terms of pace versus Red Bull, did we actually just see that Suzuka's quite a power track and maybe it was Red Bull's engines that were letting them down rather than Ferrari really getting back on terms with them in terms of chassis? I certainly think it was, it was not... Uh a representative look. Suzuka is more of a power circuit than people say. That the power sensitivity is higher there than it is than it is at certain other tracks. Because you're gently going upwards yeah, for quite a lot of the lap, and and then when the, the the straight is downwards. No, there's a lot of that there, and there's yeah. there's some actually quite long straights there, which are easy to miss because some of them aren't at, aren't quite as straight as you might imagine they are, and also engine performance and engine power is not just about having long straights to go quick on. There's all manner of things that dictate whether whether a track's power sensitive, the downforce levels you can run as a result of the power you've got, how much you can give away, how much drag you can run, you know how punchy you are off the corners, and also top speed, speed top speed speed track figures. Even those are misleading because obviously you can get to a top speed, but actually it's the speed profile on the whole straight that dictates how quick you are. So you could have a not that spectacular top speed, but if you're going quicker for two thirds of the straight and then you just run out of puff a bit when it tops out, you're going to be going quicker. But I think, yeah, Suzuka did probably say the Ferrari engine is still stronger than the stronger than the Renault, and that's perhaps that's a little reminder of how far Renault still has to go to get onto the level of Mercedes. Yeah, I mean, Red Bull may point to how close Verstappen finished to Rosberg in the final result. What was it, about four or five seconds by the end? As showing that they have made a lot of progress and that's how close they are, but... I got the impression, particularly from looking at the live timing, that there were times in that race where Rosberg and Mercedes were shutting that engine down as much as they could to protect it. There was one point, uh, I think in the final, early in the final stint, when he had a good margin, he dropped his pace by a couple of seconds, Rosberg. And then when Verstappen was responding to Hamilton behind, Rosberg found a second and a half or something like that, and suddenly the gap went out again. So... I feel like Mercedes, if they'd really had to, had quite a bit up their sleeve this weekend, and they were understandably very cautious with their engine settings. Yeah, they, they don't always put it all out there, do they? 
and it's where it's at moments like that when you just see them find uh you know a second or two seconds the way you or i might find five quid down the back of the sofa um it's uh, pretty amazing to see that's when you realize just how far everyone else has got to go you know i think the key is that someone needs to get to the point where mercedes have to use every 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 weapon they've got and then we will see more of these failures and we'll see them I think they will be the ones that could make mistakes on the pit wall and that sort of thing. We need to see them under more pressure. We have seen that at times when they've been under pressure making mistakes. We've seen them when not under pressure sometimes (laughs) making mistakes. That would be interesting. Do you think that... uh, It it struck me that there's been one of the most disappointing aspects of the year for me. Probably the only disappointing aspect, actually, is that a lot of the rivals to Mercedes have capitulated really early and done the whole well we're focusing on next year now kind of thing it's as if they view this particular engine formula as a busted flush and they're going to wait for the next roll of the dice rather than actually work at the margins and try and catch back up to mercedes i just feel like mercedes have kind of had their their foot on everyone's throats for the past three seasons and no one's really um done anything to throw it off well that's the thing i mean mercedes get a lot of criticism don't they for making formula one boring to the outside world but it's, it's everybody else I blame. It's the people yeah. who can't catch up with the same rules. Maybe smaller budgets in some quarters, but not in all quarters. And I feel like Mercedes don't actually deserve the blame. They've been very good at trying not to implement team orders despite their dominant position, all that sort of thing. But yeah, there's a lot of big teams in F1 at the moment that are letting, are letting the fans down by not taking it to them. Talking of big teams, letting Formula One down in that regard, McLaren. McLaren Honda's been coming on quite nicely recently. We start to see them turning up in Q3. You know, seeing them in the points regularly is not a, not an astonishing thing anymore. It's become quite normal. But frankly, at Suzuka, their home track, <laughs> McLaren Honda was dreadful. Yeah, woeful. It was it was back to square one, wasn't it? It was it was 2015 all over again. A car going out in Q1, and then just driving around at the back. Really, did they, did they, they fit, fit that? Did they fit that GP2 engine again? That's the did they qualify? Were they were they slower in qualifying? Um, this year than last year. I, I made one of my notes that they seemed to be... I think Alonso was definitely slower in qualifying this year than he was. He was, he was further down the order. Yeah. yeah they were both... Yeah. I think they qualified one place further back each. Yeah. Mm. So that you know that, that speaks of being overtaken in the development race. And for a, for a team that prides itself on rapid development and markets itself as such, that's a bit of a kick in the teeth. And it's also not just Honda. You know, it would be a mistake to that. There are... The car's pretty strong, but there are some some situations in which it's not quite doing what they want it to do. Well, it's really interesting. Jensen Button said this has this isn't the right sort of layout for us. He talked about uh, the power requirements of the circuit, but in terms of the corners, he said it's all high and medium speed, and that doesn't suit us. Whereas earlier in the year, we were being told that the aero's great, the chassis's great. Now it appears that the only part of the car that actually is really good is the sort of braking and low speed performance, and. It was quite funny, actually. You had Fernando Alonso was sat or stood telling the media, we don't know why we're slow here, we don't know what's going wrong on Saturday. Meanwhile, Jensen was given an explanation where he said, we need heavy braking that gets the floor close to the ground because that's when the car generates all of its performance. Um, and he said the braking zones at Suzuka aren't high enough for McLaren to basically drill the car into the ground to then generate corner speed. So that was a really good detailed explanation and that was taking place at the same time his teammate was stood to his back and stood with his back to him going, we don't know why we're so slow, we need to investigate. So 
Jensen also said, we always knew this was going to be a really tough race. But you sort of think, should it have been that bad? And plus, when the, the I'd, I'd say the cornerstone of Mercedes' success has been in developing a car for all seasons, so a car that is quick pretty much everywhere. You know, obviously, you know, the past couple of years it wasn't brilliant in Singapore. But they've they've conquered that. If you really want to take on Mercedes, you need to have a car that is good everywhere. You can't afford to have quirky performance characteristics where you need X, Y, and Z to occur in order for results Z three to happen. And that's a concern for McLaren because some of these problems they've had car-wise in the longer term over the past five, six, seven years. You wonder if some of those weaknesses are still there. The peaky downforce. Exactly, the peaky downforce. They've had a few issues with what ride heights they can operate at. There's a period where they're having to run the car very stiff, which wasn't great because it wasn't that compliant, but to make the aero platform work, they needed to do that. We've seen them having things working at certain ride height issues before. So while fundamentally the McLaren is not a bad car and at the right circuit, it can be very, very strong. And if you eliminate the, the engine performance different, then it's... Their claim that they've got the third best car stands up to scrutiny, but it certainly didn't at Suzuka, and that, that's a concern. It's definitely worrying, given that from next year, the new rules that are supposed to be this new dawn for all the teams that have made a mess of the last three years, this is supposed to be an aero formula. So if McLaren haven't got great high or medium speed corner performance at the moment, that doesn't bode very well to me for no. a team that's meant to be developing an, an aero formula car for next year. Especially when you look at the tracks that show off the best cars aero-wise. Suzuka's one of them. Barcelona's another one. This is where we saw in the Red Bull era of dominance, they used to be well ahead. There are a few other circuits as well that did that, but that's concerning. You, you know, If you say, which tracks would you like your car to be strong at? Suzuka, while an unusual configuration, the demands it places on the car means you say, yeah, if you've got a car that's strong at Suzuka, you can be, you can be fairly happy. Whereas if you need the track to be sort of a bit more stop-starty, it's going to serve you well some places, but... As you said, Collins, you need a car for all seasons, not for every third race. If there's one thing they've been successful at, it's, it strikes me they're, they're managing the relationship with Honda better, or or rather they've stopped quietly briefing against Honda and blaming them for everything. Oh, what are you suggesting? Because, <laughs> uh, you know, the, 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 the thing just wasn't working with, with the previous Honda regime. They were briefing against the, the, the Honda figurehead and very much hanging him out to dry, uh, which... He he was party too because he, you know, his English wasn't great and he was very often either misquoted or misunderstood and so you you didn't really quite know what they were saying. It just seems to me that since Hasegawa-san's come on board, who has a lot of previous F1 experience and is very respected and is um, quite a serious heavyweight engineer with a good engineering background, it seems that all of that nonsense has kind of stopped. I don't know if it's because the McLaren spin machine realised that they can't carry on saying we've got the third best car when they patently don't. That's something next year we're going to see because McLaren Honda has to take another step. They're sixth in the championship this year. They need to be up there third or fourth next year for us to take the, the progress they've made this year seriously as a long-term prospect. So that's going to shake out very interestingly. What would we accept next year? Podiums or do they need to be winning races? I think podiums is the bare minimum for me. They'd have to be finishing fourth in the championship with a few few podium finishes or constantly nailed on fourth fifth sixth places and that's that's the minimum acceptable yeah you know if you're Ron Dennis and you're trying to sell the business to whoever 
in order to uh, buy the Bahrainis out and, and whoever, you need to be showing a little bit more results-wise than top 10 qualifying and top 10 finishes. I, they, they are very much behind schedule now, aren't they? Because when when the, the Honda deal was first announced, it was, yes, this is the best thing ever. We're reconvening the old routine. We're, we're back to the 1980s. And uh, it seems like they're back to the late 70s more than anything. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly not been going well for them. And one thing they'll definitely want to do is perform a little bit better as Suzuka, the, uh, the home race for Honda. But for now, it's all about the 2016 Japanese Grand Prix. That's in the history books. And it's taken Nico Rosberg to a remarkable 23 wins. Uh, so the F1 world's taking a brief pause ahead of the Austin-Mexico doubleheader in two weeks' time. And by the end of those, we might well be talking about Nico Rosberg as a world champion. So it's goodbye from me, Ed Straw, and thanks to Stuart Codling and Glenn Freeman. Check out autosport.com for all the latest news and also in-depth articles available in our Plus subscriber section. And pick up a copy of Autosport magazine on Thursday to read our detailed look back at the Suzuka weekend and goings-on in the rest of the motorsport world. Thanks for joining us. We will be back next week with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The Venture X card from Capital One gives you premium travel benefits. Perfect for seeing Taylor Swift The Eras Tour. Presented by Capital One. Oh, I do love her. Earn five times miles on flights and ten times miles on hotels through Capital One Travel. Enjoy your stay in Suite 13. Whoa, 13? That's Taylor's lucky number. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.